Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. All right, so this week is a little bit different. We're not going to have any scriptures up on the wall. <laughs> I mean, last week, you know, Michael had two uh, graphic or two weeks ago, Michael had two graphics up here, really which were really good, a lot better than the guy who normally talks. And, um, <laughs> and, and so this week I figured, well, since he gave you extra, I'll just balance it out and Oh, yeah, okay. No, 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 no. So, but actually, we don't have anything on the screen today because um, I've really just been waiting to hear what today's message was. Um, you know, when we take a look at this first portion in the Torah portion cycle in Bereshit, we cover the first roughly 1,500 years of creation. That's a big span of time where a lot happened, and we don't get a lot of the details, really, of what all took place in that time. We do get many stories, right? We see uh, in Genesis 1, we see the creation story, the first six days of creation. In Genesis 2, you get a second view of the creation story, telling with uh, man being in the garden and having Eve as his wife. And then we get into the fall, where the serpent deceived. And then we get into Cain and Abel, and we get into the lineage that leads up to the time of Noah and the time that God said that he was going to wipe out mankind. And so, you know, when you come to this portion, there's a, a large list of things that you can talk about. I mean, there is no end to it. So I should have had just tons of material ready to go, right? But Really, I want to say, well, Lord, what is the message that you have for us today? I do want to go into uh, learning and depth, but I also just want to say, Lord, what is, what is it that you're wanting to convey? And I feel like the message today is a bit of a continuation of where we've been. We just came out of the High Holy Days, right? We went through Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, the head of the new year, and then we went to the Day of Atonement and on through Sukkot. And during Sukkot, we spoke about how Sukkot is remembrance of the exodus from Egypt. And in some ways, it's a parallel of the Passover, but yet it has its own distinctions. It's the season of our joy. It's the season of ingathering. And it's a time when all nations will come up to worship God during the millennial reign, when Yeshua is reigning from Jerusalem. And back on Sunday, we talked about the great salvation Hoshana Rabbah, and how that was a re even a recollection of the crossing of the Reed Sea, okay, which happened on the seventh day of Passover. So the seventh day of Sukkot, paralleling that and giving us a remembrance of God splitting the waters and bringing a great salvation to eliminate the enemies who pursue his people. And how God did that to the Egyptians there at the sea, and how through Yeshua, he did that to sin and death, giving us victory through the death and resurrection of Yeshua. Now then, the seventh day of Sukkot is not a rest day, whereas the seventh day of Passover is. 
Instead, Sukkot is a seven-day holiday followed by an eighth day, which is a day of rest. So there's, that's a unique aspect. But Shemini Atzeret, the eighth day, is hearkening to a new beginning that comes after the seven millennia of creation. Okay, so the sages understand that the six days of creation represent the 6,000 years of man followed by a Sabbath millennium. That Sabbath millennium being the thousand-year reign of Messiah and the restoration he brings. And then after that restoration comes a new beginning, right? And, and then on that day of new beginnings, we complete the Torah portion cycle and we begin it anew. Because we're ending a cycle, but simultaneously we're entering into something new. And now this week, uh, well, actually, so that all happened earlier this week on Sunday and Monday for the, begin, the completion of the cycle and the renewal of this new one. And now we're coming into Bereshit, speaking of the creation story and a new beginning. And even really within this portion, there are multiple new beginnings that take place. So you start out, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he places Adam in the garden, and Adam and Eve fall, right? So now there's an, there's, in one way, there's an end to what God had begun but then yet God gives a renewed hope for them, grants forgiveness, and begins them anew. And then you have Cain and Abel. And Cain struck down his brother Abel. But that wasn't the end for him either. Because according to the sages, Cain repented and God placed a mark on his head that, he would not, that no one should kill him until the seventh generation. And then you have mankind and you have the fall of mankind and how God said that he was going to send a flood to wipe out man. But yet there was Noah who found grace, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So in each time there was a failure to where it looked like an end was coming. But yet with God, there was a new beginning that was coming right around the corner that he was opening up for them through his mercy, coupled with their repentance and their turning to him and looking to him as their only hope. And so we have those stories, but then also embedded within this, we have Yeshua. We can find pictures of Yeshua throughout the storyline here. And it's God's great desire to send the Messiah to bring restoration for all things and even to have us know and be looking for who the Messiah is such that we can find, seek him and find him. So as we go through and talk today, we'll hit on a few of these things with regard to seeing pictures of Yeshua in these new beginnings. Now with new beginnings, sometimes it's new beginnings that are coming out of ashes. Sometimes it's new beginnings that are really just taking us to a new place. And sometimes it's a combination of the two, right? But we see some stories here of renewal and hope coming out of that which was destructive. Okay, so what I want to do is start out with looking in Genesis 1. Seems like a good place to start when you're starting the port portion over. Yes, Paul. I was just going to say that it's really the pattern that you have to look at because we, all, we always want to, like, you know, there's the bad stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to want to, because that's where you're living at the moment, as you go through different things in life or whatever. Even some of the testimony you shared uh, during this past week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard not to be at the moment. But it's interesting, because it's the same pattern. You look at the, the, the Job, David, and the Psalms, the prophets. They're all like, okay, this is the problems, and this is what we got, this is what's going on, this is our sin, or whatever. But at the end, there's always the hope, the redemption. Yes. Because the prophets are great, but it's amazing. There's parts of the prophets where you're like, man, I don't want to read this anymore. <laughs> you know? But I know it's, it'll get better. Yeah. And the promises come. And you see that through Torah and the whole cycle, but it's just, it's amazing. If we can just endure and stay, God's not done. Right. Amen. That's exactly right. And even, you know, you mentioned David in the Psalms, right? He always started out declaring the greatness of God. Then he would talk about the problem, right? And he would then again focus right back on the greatness of God and his ability. And so, yeah, when we go through the trials, when we go through the exile or the destruction or whatever it is, the important thing is keeping our eyes fixed on who is our hope, right? And knowing that he'll sustain us through it and bring us through it, even if it takes time and is a process, right? Amen. And and speaking of that, okay, so if we were to read in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth, when the earth was astonishingly empty, with darkness upon the surface of the deep, and the divine presence hovered upon the surface of the waters, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated between the light and the darkness. God called to the light day, and to the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So, in paralleling what Paul was talking about, in the times of darkness, in the times of chaos, there is still yet the hope that the light will come. And that's what we had here. Darkness upon the surface of the deep. The earth was astonishingly empty. And God called out for the light to be. And the light was the solution to the chaos that ruled over the earth. Right? I'm sorry? Yes. Chaos was turned to, well, God was injecting his purpose into the chaos to transform the chaos. And, and then, and the, the light, right? The light that God sends, we can understand to be Torah and we can understand it to be Yeshua. Um, in John 1, starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has not or that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now then if we continue on reading of this, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, this translation speaks in the term of he. Um, It very well could be it as well. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that this section of John is actually speaking of the Torah, which is the light. And that then it will, it transitions to speak of 
Messiah Yeshua when it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But if we think of this light that we're reading of as being the Torah, then it fits well with the idea of the sages where they say that God looked into the Torah, which was the blueprint of creation, and then he created through looking through the Torah. Okay? But the Torah brings light, and the scriptures speak of the, um, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? The word of God is light. And, and so the light enlightens the Torah, the light enlightens every man. And even though the Torah was in our midst and the world was made through it, the world did not know and rejected it. Just as, so there's a parallel here, right, of the Word and of the Messiah, where the, the world rejected the Torah, which would bring light to man. The world rejected Yeshua, which would enlighten every man and bring life. And then the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And... <clears throat> So we have Yeshua coming to bring light. He brings order to the chaos. Um, even in the, in the passage where we see Yeshua walking on the water, right? There's images of the Spirit hovering over the water, over the chaos, and Yeshua comes over the chaos, and it has authority over it, even to call the seas to have peace and be still, right? Those are a couple different stories in the Gospels, but the concept here of... Yeshua being present at the creation and all things coming to being through him is not just in our scriptures that we read in John, but it's also in the teachings of the sages. For they say, oh, this is funny, I, uh, apparently I'm not going to read from my notes today. I might, we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> Go ahead. I was thinking, remember the rich man in Lazarus and he Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to give up on the notes. Oh, wait, hey, there it is. I was, I was going to give up. But maybe, maybe, maybe we'll hang on. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> that is all right. Um, okay, so, so we, have, we have the light of God, right, which comes and enlightens every man, and in the light that he gives comes forth life. Now, in the Talmud, it is said that seven things were created before the world was created. And these are the seven things. The Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the temple, and the name of the Messiah. The Torah, for it is written, the Lord made me, which is the Torah, as the beginning of his way. Repentance, for it is written, before the mountains were brought forth, and it is written, 
you turn man to contrition and say, repent, children of men, from Psalm 90. The Garden of Eden, as it is written, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden from before time, Genesis 2, 8. And then the Gehenna, for it is written, for Tophet, which is Gehenna, is ordered of old, and that's from Isaiah 30. And the throne of glory in the temple, for it is written, your throne of glory on high from the beginning, the place of our sanctuary, from Jeremiah 17. And the name of Messiah, as it is written, his name shall endure forever and has existed before the sun, from Psalm 72. Now, within these aspects, the, the reason why I wanted to, to read that about the seven things that were created before the world is kind of tying into what Paul mentioned earlier about how when God spoke the light into the darkness, he was putting purpose and even mission into this, transforming the chaos into what God desired it to be. And what God desired was to create man in his image for fellowship and for man to take his word and his light and cover the whole earth with it, right? To fill the whole earth with the glory of God. And he set man in a position to be able to go forth and do that, right? In Genesis 2, God, t God takes man, he plants, he plants a garden and takes man and puts him in it to work it and to serve it. But then man falls, right? So God had an instruction for him of do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But yet Adam and Eve did eat of it. And God knew that man would fall. And so even before that, God provided the way for restoration to take place. And so that, this is part of the reason why the sages say that repentance existed before creation. God already had a way for man to come back and be restored. He was preparing the way well in advance. You know, I was uh, looking through some notes from a few years back and uh, Bridget had shared a, a meme on Facebook, which you know, don't stay on Facebook too long, but every once in a while you get something good out of it, right? But this meme said that long before Zacchaeus needed the tree, God had, had planted it for him, right? So Zacchaeus is wanting to see Yeshua. Yeshua's coming, and Zacchaeus goes, and he climbs this tree so he can see Yeshua, right? Well, God gave Zacchaeus what he needed to see Yeshua, but that tree had to have been planted long before the need ever arose, Right? So you see God going before Zacchaeus to give him what he needs. God goes before man and says, I'm going to make a place for you to repent and bring restoration. And I'm going to make a place of my dwelling. And I'm going to make the name of the Messiah. He's like, I've got the plan of how to restore what I know will be lost. I've got the way back for you. And it's a beautiful picture of the mercy and kindness of God. The links that he would go through to bring a people back to him. Now, in the beginning here, when we were reading in Genesis verse 1, the very first word is bereshit. Okay? Bereshit. And there's a few things about this that I think are noteworthy. Within the word... Okay, in Hebrew, the letter bet attached to the beginning of a word is a preposition, and it can be in, with, or through. 
Okay. And then the word that it's attaching itself to is reshit. Okay. Which it means the first or the foremost. And it comes from the root word rosh, which is head. So we just came through Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year. Today we'll be having a lunch after, after this because it's the Saturday before Rosh Chodesh, the head of the month. <clears throat> and so if we were to break down and say what's happening here, it says, Bereshit bara Elohim et vet Okay, so that's in the beginning, create, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, now if we were to read this in a different way, if we were to read it in that breakdown that I spoke of, it would be in or through the first or the foremost. God created the heavens and the earth, right? So now, if we think about that, through the head or the first, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, we talked about how Yeshua was in the beginning and all things were created through him, right? And Yeshua is the firstborn of all creation. So in, with, and through the firstborn of all creation, through the Messiah, God created the heavens and the earth. In Colossians 1, 15 through 18, the scripture says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before or has existed prior to all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, right? The Rosh of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, which is the Rashit, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So I think Paul's tying in here this very connection all the way back to Genesis 1.1 of through the head, through the beginning, the firstborn of all creation. God has created all things. So the Torah and Yeshua were the solution that God had to bring order to the chaos, to bring light and life to man. And his desire was to reveal the Messiah through his word, right? Now, if we were to look through Genesis 1 and go through each of the days of creation, we see that what God made is good. He calls it good. There are two things that he says are not good. One is eating the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And then also he said it's not good for man to be alone. Right. But when we look through all the things that he said were good, right? The light was good. The earth and seas were good. The vegetation, luminaries, sea creatures, land creatures. He said all these things are good. But then once he had completed it, Okay, so in Genesis 1, after he had stated that each day what he created was good, in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, so he looked at all he made, and it was very good. And I believe that what that's referring to is the whole sum of the parts coming together he saw as very good. Every week... During our Shabbat dinner, on Friday nights, um, we'll say the blessings, we'll sing songs, we'll begin our meal. And as we begin the meal, 
one of the things we like to do is to ask everybody in the family, hey, what was your favorite thing this week? And so we'll hear the kids say, what's your favorite thing? And, and the kids asked, Dad, what was your favorite thing? And I started to think about it, and I just had this strong sense that, uh, that what, like what was my favorite thing was that very moment sitting at the table. And it's not that this, this Friday dinner was extra special anyway, but what I was getting a sense of, what I was gathering, was that it was that that moment was the culmination of the week and all of the good things that had happened during the week that made that moment my favorite moment. You know, there were several things I could point to and say, oh, that was great, that was great, that was great. But it was that moment, that culmination, that, that became my favorite moment. And I feel like that was a picture of what's happening here when God, at the end of his six days, looks and says, looks at all he created. And he could have said, you know what? That's my favorite in a way. That's my favorite in a way. That's my favorite in a way. But he's like, this is all very good. And that begins the Shabbat. That begins the rest, right? The culmination of the week, just as the seventh millennium will be the culmination of the 6,000 years of man, when Yeshua is then taking all that has transpired and he's redeeming and restoring and bringing about a place that is prepared for God's presence to dwell with man in that world to come. <clears throat> One of the things the sages say is that last indeed is first in thought. Okay, so what that's essentially saying is that you begin a project with a goal in mind. And you begin doing bits and pieces along the way that will ultimately build up to the goal that you set out to achieve. But that goal that you achieve is the last thing that is actually done, that's actually completed. But it was the first thing that began the whole string of events, right? So last indeed was first in thought. And so when God goes and he begins to prepare a place he begins to prepare the world for man, and then he sets the luminaries in the heavens to serve as signs and for appointed times. Speaking of which, if he's already on day four setting things in place for his appointed times, then he already had to have his appointed times in mind, right? Even before man was created. And the appointed times are redemptive in nature, right? And we've talked about this probably multiple times in the past few weeks. But when we look at the appointed times that we've just come out of, right, we just concluded the cycle. Um, the cycle begins at Passover with redemption, moves forward into Pentecost or Shavuot with the renewal or the covenant and the drawing close covenant increase of God with man and then culminating in God's dwelling presence with man and then the new beginnings that come from that. So all this is a picture of redemption, right? Redemption, or actually of restoration, the full story of restoration where people were lost and enslaved, brought out of that, brought to God to be with him, and now a place is ready for God's dwelling presence with man, right? So he put all that plan of restoration in place just as re repentance was in place before man ever set foot on the earth. And then you go forward, and on the sixth day, 
God creates man and he places him in the garden to work and to serve. And now, now God takes a step back and says, I've completed this creation. I'm going to enjoy it. And that's where the rest from his creating took place. And he said, I'm going to enjoy that which I've created, which is very good. And so at, at the end of our week, for six days we labor and we go through our week, but then we come into the seventh day and we desist from the work and we enjoy that which we've worked for, right? We enter into God's rest in a new way. Now, one theme that was striking to me this week had to do with God's desire for man to have a partner. Okay, so what I want to do is read Genesis 2. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished and all their array. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he abstained on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he abstained from all his work which he had created to make. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now all the trees of the field were not yet on the earth, and all the herb of the field had not yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to work the soil. A mist ascended from the earth and watered the whole surface of the soil. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east and placed there the man whom he had formed. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. Also the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I'm going to jump forward to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to guard it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of knowledge of good and bad you must not eat thereof, for on the day you eat it you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding to him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call each one, and whatever the man called each living creature, that remained its name. And the man assigned names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But as for man, he did not find a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his sides, and he filled in flesh in its place. Then the Lord God fashioned the side that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This time it is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This shall be called woman." For from man was she taken. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so God said it's not good for a man to be alone, but then he had to find a, a helper who would complement, who was corresponding to him. And not, no other creation would fit that bill. And so he took from Adam and created Eve. And then 
he did that with the intent of those two becoming one flesh. So he took out of Adam to create something separate such that he could reunify that which had been with Adam back into one. And I, and I was thinking about the significance of that in that there was nothing that was fit to become one with Adam except that which came forth from him. Because everything else was, to a great degree, other. Yes, they were God's creation, but there was something lacking in all of the other creations. And one of the key aspects of this is that when, when the scripture says that God created man, it actually says that God blew into his nostrils the soul of life, and he became a living being. Right, So God blew his ruach into man and he became a living being. So God actually placed some of himself, right? So everything proceeds forth from the Father. That's what Yeshua says. Everything proceeds forth from the Father and even every person there is a spark, the image of God within them. Right? And God places his spirit within man to give life. And, okay, so when God created the heavens and the earth, right, God is transcendent. He is everywhere, right? There is no limit to who he is. But then he carves out a space for creation. And he places man who is in his image there. And he desires for man to create a space for God to enter into. Right, so God carved out a space for man to dwell in with the desire that man would then form it into a place of God's dwelling presence, right, such that God could refill it, <clears throat> such that he and man could be together and united. Then God takes from Adam and he takes something out of him, forms something else in order to bring it back together. I think he was trying to give Adam... I mean, there are many purposes for it, so I'm not trying to whittle it down to one. But I think he wanted to give Adam a picture of the unity that God desires. He says, I'm going to take out of you something that is like you, that is separate, but my desire is for you to become one. Right? And in that process of becoming one, you're going to have to learn to live together. <laughs> right? Some harder than others, right? But you're going to have to learn... Um, how to do that. But this is a picture of this, like where, where man is created in the image of God, has a spark of the divine in them, has the spirit of God in them. But then God says, my desire is to be one with you. Right? And I'm, I'm you know, going from the words of Yeshua that God's desire was that we would be one along with him. From John 17, I don't want to, I'm not going to take the time actually right now to, to go and find that verse, but his desire, he says that he is one with the Father, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, and his desire is that we too would be in him, 
just as he is in the Father. We'd be with him together, united, right? <clears throat> so I think God's giving that picture of the union that he wants, the intimacy he wants, the relationship that he desires for man to have with him. And he creates the opportunity for that. But then man falls. Man falls, and there has to be a path back, right? Now, when man fell, man was in the garden, but then man was exiled from the garden. The reason man was exiled from the garden, God says, he does not want man to go and take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Right? Before man took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man could eat of the tree of life and there was no problem. Because God said you can eat of all of the trees of the garden. But now that man has eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and has fallen and has sinned, now he says, okay, now it's not the time to eat of this tree of life and live forever. Because if you eat of the tree of life and live forever, right, then I can't restore you. Right? You, I need to send you the redemption and I will give you the life from the true tree of life who is the Son. And once I give you that life, you'll be fully restored and can be in full relationship with God forever. Right? So he puts two cherubim, two cherubs, to guard the way to the tree of life. And they have flaming swords, right? So that Adam and Eve cannot enter back in. The next place that you see the cherubs show up is on the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and that there's only two places in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, that these cherubs are mentioned. And that's to guard the way to the tree of life. And then it's to cover over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant contains within it the Torah scroll, right? And the Torah is understood by the sages to be a tree of life, right? And specifically, that pulls from Proverbs 3, 18. So in, in Proverbs 3, it's speaking of wisdom specifically. And I'll start reading in verse 13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For its profit is better than the profit of silver and its gain than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. And it goes on to say, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. Okay, so the sages liken wisdom to the Torah, and the Torah to light, and also the Torah to a tree of life. And the tree, so if you take this imagery and you say, okay, well, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, the cherubs were keeping them from the tree of life. And now God has moved forward in his plan of restoration. He has returned the tabernacle, which is a picture of the Garden of Eden, to the earth. And now he has placed his cherubs again 
guarding the way to the tree of life. But in this case, they don't have a sword. Instead, now they're overshadowing the mercy seat, overshadowing the tree of life. And so it's God's desire to bring life back to the world. And his Torah is the guide that leads us to what is ultimately the tree of life, right? Because think about this, what the scripture says is that the goal of the Torah is the Messiah, right? So the goal of the, of the Torah is the Messiah because the Torah will lead us, it will light our path and guide us to understanding the wisdom of God, to understanding his ways, his mercy, his kindness, and will lead us to know and identify and recognize who the Messiah is such that we can then cling to him and have life through abundantly and forevermore through him. So he is a tree of life to those who find him and hold fast to them. But God is not blocking the way. He's covering over the way, over that mercy seat and inviting us to seek him out and to come to know him. And God brings the, redeem or the Redeemer to those who are in need. Interestingly, you know, I mentioned earlier about how the portion ends with Noah finding favor in the eyes of God and how through the favor found that Noah found before God, eight people were able to be brought through the flood, right? It was in, it was in Noah's merit that his family was preserved through the ark. Then later on you go forward and you see a greater degree of grace in Moses, how he was able to intercede for the children of Israel such that they wouldn't be wiped out. And then you go further, even, even beyond, to Yeshua, who attained such grace and favor before the Father that all who would call in the name of the Lord through all generations could be preserved into the world to come. But so, so we have that picture of, with Noah. But interestingly, we, we find also a picture of the suffering Messiah in the story of Cain and Abel. Yes. I was just going to say that a major on threads throughout Scripture, it's beautiful to go back to the first couple of things. It's like almost the foundation for understanding. We literally almost that the light and life and drawing back to the presence through the temple and the original garden, even like a microcosm of the temple in heaven. And so exactly. It's always the tabernacle and the temple and Yeshua dwelling in us as our temple. And so these threads, starting in Genesis, you literally can take them. It's God's continual message mm -hmm. yeah, every step of the way. Yeah. Same theme. That's why people. That's why it's so difficult when people want to separate the quote Old and New Testament because you can't. Mm -hmm. You literally lose the foundation of every. That's why right. Genesis is so attacked by those that don't believe in God because if you get rid of Genesis and first part of Exodus, you really trying to get rid of the understanding of where everything even began and why mm -hmm. we do what we do. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, it's just that interesting the parallels and the beauty. Yes. How he ultimately wants us to bring us back to that garden when things were right mm -hmm. before sin, before we messed up, before, you know, in that original intent of, of that relationship we once again get to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Paul, I think it was really important what you're saying that this lays the foundation really of uh, the whole story. And we have to build upon this. But it gives also the gospel message is essentially contained. In, in this portion alone, let alone carry on, as you said, through the beginning of Exodus, right? And um, 
Yeah, it, it is beautiful how much God's desire to restore is always present, always calling out for that restoration. Now, in the story of Cain and Abel, I'll, I'll read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4. Now the man had known his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have acquired a man with the Lord. And additionally, she bore his brother Abel. Abel became a shepherd, and Cain became a tiller of the ground. After a period of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And as for Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and from their choicest. The Lord turned to Abel and to his, and to his offering, but to Cain and his offering he did not turn. This annoyed Cain exceedingly, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you annoyed, and why has your countenance fallen? Truly, if you improve yourself, you will be forgiven. But if you do not improve yourself, sin rests at the door. Its desire is toward you, yet you can conquer it. Cain spoke with his brother Abel, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Then he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Therefore you are cursed more than the ground, which opened its wide its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall become a vagrant and a wanderer on earth. Okay, so Cain had killed Abel, uh, a bit of sibling rivalry, and there are various stories in the Talmud that explain what was taking place and gave reasons for, um, for why Cain killed Abel. But one of the things that uh, Targum Jonathan, right, Aramaic translation of the Bible, said that Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices on Passover. And that was the day that Cain struck down Abel, was on Passover. Interestingly, right? And Cain brought of his first fruits, but he didn't bring the choicest. And Abel brought of, of his first fruits, which were the, the best of his flock, right? Now, so they say they brought that on Passover. And the Midrash Tanhuma describes the murder as follows. It says that Cain bruised him over and over again with a stone, wounding him on his hands and on his feet. Isn't that interesting? When we look at the stories of the sages, they talk about Abel being struck down on Passover and that he was bruised on his hands and his feet. Beautiful. Right to understand that even embedded in the wisdom of the sages, apart from what they had seen, I mean, they, they extracted this from the scripture and through the spirit, they had insight that God was giving them, right? And this insight was to serve as a sign to help them find who Messiah is, right? Especially when we go and we read about how Yeshua died on Passover and he was wounded on his hands and his feet. When he was crucified, yes. Uh, just, I don't mean to, to comment on this one. I don't usually, but the word that's used is very interesting because it means to slaughter and sacrifice. I'm sorry. Messiah. Yeah, that's excellent. So for those who are online and, and couldn't hear that, Paul was saying that when the scriptures here, when it says that Cain killed Abel, that it has uh, embedded within the meaning of the word slaughtered as a sacrifice, such that you, again, have yet another picture of... Uh, 
of Abel's death being a picture of Messiah. Yeah. Um, so we have... So we have this, but then even for Cain, that was not his end. God allowed him to live. Uh, he prospered. His offspring increased. And I mention this because here Cain had, had sinned grievously. But yet, that wasn't the end of his story, right? He repented. God, co- God still punished him for what he did, but yet... God gave him a protection and a covering such that he could live through multiple generations. And then even when you look down through the line um, in, in Genesis 4, verse 22, when the scripture is detailing the offspring and the, and the lineage of Cain, it comes to someone and it says, And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. According to the sages, Nama was Noah's wife. Right? So even, you know, we read later on about the sons of Korah. You know, Korah led the rebellion and he was swallowed up, yet his offspring, his sons who did not stand with him, went, went forward and wrote many psalms, right? God had a plan and a purpose for them, so the sin was not the end, right? It didn't define everything. There's the chance for repentance. There's a chance for new beginnings, And then before I wrap up here, there was one more thing that I wanted to point to from the Haftarah in Isaiah 42. Okay, in Isaiah 42, starting in verse 5, So said God, the Lord, who creates the heavens and stretches them forth, spreads out the earth and what grows from it, gives a soul to the people upon it and a spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. In righteousness have I called you and taken hold of your hand. I have protected you and appointed you to bring the people to the covenant, to be a light for the nations, to open blinded eyes, to remove a prisoner from confinement, dwellers in darkness from a, dun- from a dungeon." So within this, you know, you can see, you could read this from multiple perspectives, right, of God calling Israel, protecting them and appointing them to bring the nations to the covenant, to be a light for the nations. But it's also, speaking of the Messiah, who he has anointed and appointed to bring the people to the covenant, to be a light for all nations, Right, to open blinded eyes, remove the prisoners from their confinement and the dwellers of darkness from a dungeon. Right. The great hope that Yeshua brings. And there's one other thing that in in Isaiah forty three verses four in verse four, the scripture says, Because you were worthy in my eyes, you were honored and I loved you. So I gave a person instead of you. And, regime, and regimes instead of your soul. Now that stood out to me because it says, I gave Adam instead of you and regimes instead of your soul. I gave a person for you in your place. 
And God says, fear not, I am with you. From the east I will bring your offspring, and from the west I will gather you. Yeshua is likened to Adam, right? He's the second Adam. Or he's the one, he's, actually he's the, first, the original Adam, but um, he's the one who reverses that which was lost when Adam sinned, right? And when he says, I gave Adam instead of you, right? There's, again, the picture of Yeshua, the first Adam, the original Adam, who then comes and redeems the fall that came through Adam and Eve. And God says, I gave a person instead of you, right? So there's an offering that God made a substitute in place of the people such that they wouldn't perish. He gave a man. He gave the Messiah to come and to bring the way. And Yeshua says, Yeshua says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we find life through him and the way back to the Father. He is the one who is given as a covenant for the people and a light to all the nations, the one who brings order out of the chaos, the one who brings the hope of life, the hope of the new beginnings. And so as we, as we wrap up here and get ready for Jared to come up and talk about the new month, I'll just go back to what we started out talking about, is that there are new beginnings that God is working out for each and every one of us, right? New beginnings taking us to a new plane, new beginnings that are redeeming that which has been lost, and that he's gone before us, and he's prepared the way, just as he has throughout all time, for his people, such that he's created the way back, he's created the way out, and he's created the provision for you along the way such that you will not walk in darkness, but that you will walk in the light. Amen. I'm going to say a prayer, and then Jared will come up. Lord, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for the light that you spoke into the darkness. We thank you, Lord, that you sent the true light into this world, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We thank you for the man you gave in our place, that we could have renewed relationship with you. And we look to the day of his coming. We look to the completion of your restoration. But right now, we thank you for this new beginning that you are working out in us. We thank you for the new beginning of this cycle and this new month that is around the corner. Lord, we give you praise and glory and thanks for all that you have done, for it is very good. We bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.